Welcome to the Leadership Trap Podcast, recorded live here in Austin, Texas. In this podcast, we explore the conditions that lead to surviving and thriving in a successful leadership role. We examine the traps that can cause leaders to stumble, bumble, or get ambushed in ways that may or may not be of their own making. I'm Dr. Chris Petrovka, and with David Hewen of Austin WorkNet, we have a conversation with each leader that explores the traps that they have encountered through their leadership journey. Hopefully it brings a new perspective to your role as a leader and helps you navigate your own way through the traps. Thanks for joining us. Let's jump into the trap. Well, David, for this particular episode, there is so much energy. I mean, this was one we could have just kept going and going because having Joseph Kopser on the show and his energy and his enthusiasm for what he does was just fantastic. I, I had to go back and listen to this one a couple of times. Yeah, I thought so too. It, it went at blinding speed. Uh, and where do we even start in providing an introduction to this that does justice to Joseph Kopser? Um, okay, bear with me. He's a successful entrepreneur. In fact, he sold his company. This is how I came to know him years ago. He was building out this cool alternative energy company. He eventually sold it to Mercedes. Uh, so that's a nice pedigree. Uh, he's a public speaker, technology entrepreneur. Uh, he's an expert in transportation, smart cities, urban mobility, energy, um, and national security issues, for that matter, as well, because he's an Army combat veteran, a West Point grad. So there's a starting point for you. Plus, he's a book writer. Uh, he, uh, a few years ago, uh, released a book called Catalyst Leadership and Strategy in a Changing World. Uh, he's an active investor and mentor to dozens of companies. Uh, want some more? So he ran for Congress. Uh, he served as executive residence at uh, the McCombs School of Business at UT Austin. Today, he's working on a variety of things, and he's using his experiences as well as his 20 years of service in the Army, which included, I'll say more, uh, special assistant to the CEO of the Army, uh, to build the next generation of leaders. That seems to be his real passion at the moment. He's uh, also heading up a strategy for this firm called The Mentor Method. We talked a bit about that. Uh, venture towards the the end of the episode. Definitely worth sticking around for that. The mentor method, great name for a venture in and of itself. Uh, and I like their vision. I like what they're trying to accomplish. Well, it ties in as well to a couple of areas that we talked about on the, this podcast, particularly around role modeling and how we often, as as younger leaders, we are often a culmination of the people that have mentored us, the leaders that are in front of us and how we see and watch those behaviors. We spend a lot of time talking about that as well as some important elements of leaders that he's observed over time, particularly around the importance of resiliency. We get into a lot about how important that is and then it brings up this context of the Peter Principle. So this will be a good one for leaders to listen to. And I think it'll be very introspective for them as they go through and they hear his stories about how he's worked with leaders and the impact we have on others in a leadership role. Yeah, it was a wide-ranging discussion. We covered a lot of ground. I mean, as we said at the outset, this guy has amazing intellectual energy, compelling, interesting to listen to, passionate, uh, and it comes across in a very uh, genuine way. Uh, Joseph Kopser wants to make a difference for both current and future generation leaders. Um, 
So happy to introduce all of you to Joseph Kopser. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Leadership Trap Podcast. We're so excited to be here with our guest tonight, Joseph Kopser. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Appreciate you both having me on. Yeah, it's such a treat to have you on. You know, we actually gave you a bit of behind the scenes of what we typically do as a lead up to a podcast is we'll record the introduction of our guest after we've recorded the uh, podcast because we'll refer to certain things we talk about. I suspect our dilemma when we record the um, introduction for you is because you have so many credentials and impressive activities you've been involved with that we may just have already run out of time just doing the introduction. So, Joseph, hey, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show. It was great talking to you guys. Yeah, I really enjoyed coming to know you through your introduction. <laughs> now, just yeah, um, no, I, I appreciate it. You know, some people, and by the way, you did a really good job of saying that that intro was nice because it covered a wide range of interests. Other people just heard that and think that I'm a hot mess because I haven't figured out what I want to be when I grow up in life. So I'm glad you put a positive spin on it. <laughs> yeah, go. well, actually, because this is an intervention, we wanted to gently move into the topic of what you that, want to be. That's when why my in. kids are all three sitting here in chairs watching this. Is this what this is? That's right. part of. Yes. Yeah, so kids, come on in. And your uh, long lost uncle and aunt have finally chosen to. Okay, let's get serious and focus on you, shall we, Joseph, and the topic of leadership trap? Um, I love it. Let's go. Okay, so lots to draw from, as I just noted, but I thought we'd start with the book that you and your colleague wrote a few years ago, 2018 release, titled uh, Catalyst, Leadership and Strategy in a Changing World. So I can't help but start with that simply because that title alone implies a changing world led up to the point of authorship for that book a few years ago. There's been a bit of a changing world since then. So I'm curious, if you were to approach that same book now, how differently would you be entering into the writing process as a result of the changes in the world just in the past few years? What a great way to start a question on leadership. So well, what I think I would say, and I don't want to put words into my co-author, Brett Boyd, who is just phenomenal, did the lion's worth of that book. But I think what we would say is two things. So on the first theme of the book, which is about how leadership impacts you know, the reaction to change and how you can lean forward with strategy, I don't think we would say really anything per se changes about that. I think if anything, we would say is, see, see what we were talking about? That's what we meant. If you don't go back and challenge your assumptions and you just assume that as soon as COVID lifts, everybody's going to want to go back to the way it was, you're going to be in trouble. See, that's what we told you. Now, the other neat thing that came out of the book, and you know, as we reflected on the book, it was such a part of our lives, we wrote it, but we really wrote it about our life experiences, is we got to scratch our head and say, oh, wow, that accelerated a whole lot faster than we thought when we wrote about it. You know, one of the things that we talked about quite a bit in the book was supply chains and supply chain resilience and Mm -hmm. how it used to be. It was all just about it's the bottom line, squeeze out any excess, squeeze out any efficiencies. And if we can make it cheaper for one penny per part, per item, per day, send it anywhere in the world you want. Well, that's because we didn't price risk correctly and we didn't price 
price the risk to the supply chain. And now everybody's going, aha, that's what they were trying to get at. And by the way, we didn't even articulate as well as we could have in the book. So that was what we would probably go back and change a little bit just to be able to use those anecdotes that we were just searching for. But now we have it. So uh, I love the way you let off that question because uh, it we're very proud of it. I think the work still stands. Uh, if In fact, even more so because the whole first section of the book is adapting to change and how you do that. Got it. Yeah, you know, um, you're certainly a, a connoisseur of leadership. Uh, you help uh, emerging leaders, emerging companies. Uh, you're involved with uh, University of Texas um, master's program in the uh, in the leadership space. Uh, what gets in the way of being a successful leader? Would you say? Well, I mean, the quick answer I'll just throw out here is your own hubris or your own personality, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, you can look at metaphors from all different parts of society, but if leaders just spent a little bit more time listening and absorbing and thinking and a little less time talking, acting, pushing, anticipating in a way that's not based on judgment, just based on impatience, I think that is really what gets in the way of good leadership. I I mean, I've got so many, you know, we don't even have time in this podcast to give you examples of personalities and people that influenced me as a mentor, as a coach, as a family member. But George Casey, former CEO of the United States Army, known as the Army Chief of Staff, the four-star that ran the whole thing, he used to say this quote that I love, and I repeat every chance I get, which is leadership, good leadership often means never making a decision before you have to, never making a decision before you have to. And a lot of people completely misinterpret that and go like, oh, procrastination and oh, dilly-dallying. That's not at all what he means is. What he means is have the courage of confidence to know that you don't know it all. And the longer you can be deliberate, listening, thinking, experiencing what's going on in the world, then when you know you have to make a decision, you make the best decision that you can. Won't be perfect. It's the best decision. But it's those people whose hubris and whose personality and whose ego gets in the way and say, I know what's best. We're going to do it this way or the highway. And oftentimes commit to a course of action before they have to. Hmm. And I just love his analogy of never making a decision where you have to. It's just one example of how your personality and hubris gets in the way. I see that a lot with a lot of the leaders that I work with. And I, what I would say, sometimes there is a pattern. And I, my question, I guess, is what pattern do you see where you kind of know that's a leader might make that this mistake here. And part of this listening aspect that you're talking about, a lot of times I see it as maybe just not enough experience. They just don't know. They haven't had enough feedback to realize I'm doing all the talking. I'm not the one listening. Or I sometimes also see maybe there's a little bit of lack of self-confidence, kind of the, uh, Yep. Uh, imposter uh, syndrome happening. Oh, man. My boss in Iraq, who I won't name because he's still alive and well, and lots of people know him. This guy, whether in peacetime or in combat, and he was only our boss for just a short time in combat until he was basically pulled out of command, had such an imposter syndrome that he could not get over. Such a insecurity. I don't know really what it is. We'd have to lay him down on the chair and psychoanalyze for a while. But he just couldn't allow his subordinates to see that he might have to ask them a question or their advice. And the crazy part was he had never been to combat. And at that time in our army, 2006 timeframe, 2005, 2006, 
it was most of our junior leaders who had been to combat, who had had experience, but he just couldn't, he just could not bring himself to think that a senior lieutenant colonel with 40 years of experience had anything to really learn from a junior captain of just, you know, 10 years uh, in the army, making that person 30 years old. So it was just so sad to watch him go down that leadership spiral. Yeah, you know, further to that point, you, you've caused me to reflect a bit that I often see leadership cultures take hold based on what gets modeled at the top. So if you have right. a leader modeling certain brash, um, aggressive, over-the-top, uh, pointing out people's faults publicly and um, probably hiding a bit of their own um, uh uh, fragile ego, but nevertheless, that's what's being modeled. So for first-time yeah. leaders, they're trying to make determinations of how can I be successful around here? Well, this guy's successful. He's running the show. I should adopt those behaviors. So how do you break uh, that pattern? How do you how do you intervene? Well, I'm going to answer it a little differently than you asked me the question because I hope we circle back to the way you asked me, but let's first go back to the more important part of what was embedded in what you asked, which is this phrase. And, and I don't have many things that I'm credited with or invented or whatever. I usually just copy all the great ideas of the smart people around me. But this is one that if you Google and you put it in parentheses or quotes, you'll realize uh, that I was one of the first people to ever say it. But people will be what they can see. People will be what they can see. And there's so many different ways to unpack it, but it goes to your point, which is so a junior. Yeah, yeah. Junior person in the organization sees a senior leader, you know, stepping on people's backs on the way to their next job, burning midnight oil at both ends, calling people seven o'clock at night, seven o'clock in the morning. And they think because that person has been called the boss that that's what right looks like. But you, the three of us, all of us listening know that those behaviors are not right people will be what they can see is the downside of that expression. Now, the upside, the upside of that expression is for leaders who role model, who really embody and live the values that they talk about and they actually walk about in the same manner, they become wonderful role models. And I've had those in many positions in life. Robert Cohn, Bob Cohn is one of my favorite examples. We can get into him later if you want. But there's one more aspirational element of that phrase, people will be what they can see, which is you can lift people up. You can pull people up who maybe never imagined that they could have that job, that they could live that life, that they, from their background, whether humble or by age or stage or ethnicity, background, gender, whatever it is, if they see somebody else that they can identify with, well, now that's a game changer. And maybe they can be that person. They can be in that job. And that's what's so cool about that expression. But your original question was, how do you break that cycle? Yeah. Well, that's on the little tougher side. So one way to do it, and this requires leadership at the highest levels, is to remove that leader who is creating that toxic culture and reestablish what right looks like. So that's one way. That's responsibility even above, whether it's board of directors, shareholders, mm -hmm. stakeholders whatever it is. And it, it's been my experience in 30 plus years. When there's a toxic leader, almost everybody knows it, top, bottom, and peer. 
but there's something about the organization, the culture, the bureaucracy, the courage level, whatever it is, who don't want to make a change or even try to help them improve. So one way to break it, of course, is to remove that leader, which is my favorite way to do it because a toxic leader has that terrible 80-20 effect, which is you might think that they're doing great things or the organization doing great things, but really 80% of the time within the organization is being consumed by that toxic cancer that's growing and you just got to pull that person out. Now, the other way to do it in the meantime, if you can't, it is incumbent upon leaders at all levels to remember two things, well, not just two, but two main ideas that I'd like to drive home. One is, it is only going to make it worse in the organization if at lower levels, mid-management, for instance, were to point to the boss as being terrible and blame it on the boss and talk about the boss so that then junior subordinates are like, yeah, yeah, the boss is terrible. The big boss is terrible. But that doesn't do, in my opinion, as long as the person is doing something that is not illegal, immoral, or unethical, and that's even sooner, get them out. But if they're just bad, it's a learning opportunity for the mid-level manager to work with that junior person on the team to be like, okay, I, I understand you're a little confused that this was our direction one month, and then now we're going in that direction. But how can you and I, working together, implement these new changes? In other words, Try your best not to throw your bad boss under the bus, even though it's really easy to do, because all that does is further pull down the culture of the company. But instead to be like, look, we may not understand the rationale, even though tongue in cheek, you might know that they're just incompetent. But working together, you can use that as a learning point for that junior subordinate. So you as a middle manager can not only grow, but boy, imagine the loyalty you create now between that junior subordinate to the middle manager who are all suffering under that bad boss. And then the last way, the last thing, if you don't have that middle management or top management doesn't remove them, it becomes incumbent upon you, the individual, to remember to you know know thyself and seek self-improvement in the sense that if you know that's not right, then don't do it. If you know your boss is throwing shade at people and showing up late to meetings and not living the values, well, that doesn't give you any excuse to show up late to work uh, or whatever the context might be. And unfortunately, uh, not everybody has seen what right looks like to know what wrong looks like. And they sometimes think wrong is right. Uh, and that's just no organization I'd want to be a part of. Or as I've had to do several times in my career, that's an organization I'd love to come into as a leader and get to make everlasting change. Yeah, great opportunity there. In fact, I'll, I'll deepen this this discussion or, or, or maybe go deep and broad on it uh, because we had a case in our region here back in the 80s and 90s, an incredibly successful company with a brash, over-the-top, uh, highly critical uh, leader. However, employees and leaders were making uh, money hand over fist this because the stock options were just exploding. And so it was generating personal wealth. So one argued that they were willing to sell their soul uh, because of the riches they were either uh, currently attaining or were about to attain. And so they would turn a blind eye. And as a result, it became a, a corrosive culture, we used to say in the uh, company I was with, well, thank God for that company, because even though we've got some leaders who aren't doing well, it's nothing like that company. Now, I, I'm not going to give it away, but uh, the folks who are in the Austin region know it. 
uh, and that founding CEO uh, sort of fell on his sword much later and said, yeah, I accept responsibility for the culture I created. And he's been working to recover ever since. Yeah. Well, you know, when you find yourself in that situation, you as the, as a member of the team just have to decide, uh, are you going to encourage it? Are you going to put up with it? What, where do your values stack into it? Money over meaning or wherever you want to measure it. I know in the one case I had, uh, well, I had a couple of cases now that I think about it, that same context you're talking about. One, I, I full on turned my boss in to hit to his senior folks and just said, look, I, you know, like I think the company you're talking about, they didn't do anything illegal, immoral, or unethical. Yeah, yeah, they yeah, were just a yeah. bad, toxic culture to work right, in because it right. wasn't good for people. Uh, and I had a similar case like that. And so I went to my boss's boss and just said, look, I've been doing my best as the chief of staff, you know, to my boss to try to cover over this and try to make best out of this, make lemonade out of these lemons that this guy was throwing mm-hmm. off this tree uh, until I finally just said, look, either he goes or I go. It's that simple. Either he goes or I go. And uh, my boss's boss sent him packing. So I ended up getting promoted, not because that was my goal. My goal was to get him out of the chain of command, but it uh, worked out kind of nice in the end. At least I hope so. When I'm working with uh, leaders in these situations, which is unfortunately more common than you'd think, uh, yep. a couple of things that, that I always try to advise is one element is be sure you're gathering insights from others, right? What, how are others seeing the situation? Because you're right, they'll, they'll yeah. see that one boss, they'll see that one person and go, oh yeah, they're fantastic. They're, they're really great. And that's how I get ahead. I'm going to have to just trample on top of people. I always say, gather some insights from others. It's kind of like the, um, I guess the metaphor of the elephant, right? You're only seeing one view of this. There's other people seeing the whole piece of it. Yeah. And then the second thing I always try to remind the middle managers is that a lot of your job is you're, you're an organizational interpreter and you have to think about what you're seeing from the top, what you're hearing. How do you interpret that so those working for you can understand it and put it in context? Yeah. Bleep it out afterwards. But, mm-hmm. you know, the big joke in the military is at every level, the one above you is so terrible that, you know, the junior most member of a team is a is a is a private in the army and they've got a team leader and a squad leader you know, two levels up in a squad of eight and it's always uh those assholes up at squad <laughs> that are just right. ruining all this uh and so there is that natural suspicion of the higher headquarters being yeah. out of touch which in your work and my work we both know that there's a lot to be said for that but yeah. i love that expression the cultural interpreter because i use it yeah. in other contexts but i haven't used it in quite yeah. the same way you did Hey, by the way, you brought up your extensive experience in the military. Um, what aspects of leadership don't translate well between the military and the private sector? I love that question because there are very few that don't. There are very few that don't. Um, I'm I'm never. What, what's the expression? I'm never. I never cease to be surprised. I guess I should say I'm always reminded that people believe this stereotype that they see on TV or movies or John Wayne about whatever military leadership is. But the very best leaders I've ever known in the military, 20 years in the army, in business, having run, uh, you know, built and sold companies and worked for great bosses for the last 12 years. Even my two years uh, in politics when I ran for Congress, And my uh, three, five, almost eight years now collectively in academia, 
the leadership qualities and traits of the best leaders in all four of those organizations types were the same. In fact, you can see from biographies that many of those folks have ever so nicely moved between those sectors smoothly because if you remember the greatest you know leadership qualities or attributes at the end of the day are all about people people period people and how to leadership is in my in my opinion how to influence people to do something they wouldn't normally ever want to do or think to do on their own that's leadership that's it. I mean, it's a pretty simple definition. It's not going to be in a textbook necessarily, but that's my definition because leadership in the military. All right, folks, we need to run up this hill in combat. Let's lead the way. Woo! And the leader leads the way and everybody follows and they run up the hill in combat. But in business, okay, folks, we have got to get out there on the streets and sell this product. We are behind this quota. Whoop, the leader leads first out the door and there they are on the hot street corner selling that product. In politics, hey, folks, this is going to be a really tough decision. Not everybody's going to like it. We're not going to make everybody happy, but I'm going to lead publicly with the messaging, and this is the way we're going to go. What up? And it works. And same thing in academia. Hey, folks, we have got to change the way we're doing this. We cannot do it the same way we did. So follow my example. Here's what I'm doing differently, and off we go. Uh, and that's just four very short snippets of what I mean. Uh, but I guess I'd have to sit down a long time with a open sheet of paper and think through what it is about what makes people successful in the military that cannot translate into the other aspects of life. I, I might be rare, but I think leadership is universal no matter what context you're in. It's just to your cultural context, mentioned a second ago, Chris, how you apply different techniques. Yeah, I so, think that's very true. Sorry, Chris. I, I just wanted to put one adder to that. So very compelling across all those industries, all those conditions in which you can recognize common leadership attributes and traits and see them in action. How much of that is taught? I know this is a common question, Joseph, but uh, you thought about it. How much of that can be taught and how much do they just have to bring with them through their own DNA? Okay, I, I, I don't believe anything about the body literature that says that leadership is born. I, I just don't. I've seen too many examples from history where leadership is learned, leadership is earned, leadership is evolved. Um, but if there's anything born, born about leadership, it's less about, David, I think their DNA, and I think it's more about their ZIP. And what I mean by that is their zip code. So if you're fortunate to be born into a neighborhood with good schools and good opportunities and good jobs and good role models, you have a more likely path to being in positions of good leadership and you just mirror the examples of those you see around you. So I think it's less about their DNA. It's more about their ZIP. Yeah, I, I would agree there too. I think that early stages of developing some of the things like resiliency and those sort of things that come with the character that happens, you tie that together with the pieces that you build it out through the learning that you're getting it really comes together. Yeah, I will put one little tagline that we need to dig deeper into. And you uh, mentioned it, Chris, which is the idea of resiliency. So backing up the, uh, the time clock to the middle of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, the United States government was very concerned about the discovery 
that the suicide rate had not only been high during that time, but when they started to gather all the records, they're like, wait, it's been high for military veterans forever. And it has stayed consistently at almost 21 per day. And then when they dug down deep in the data, they're like, wait a minute, of all these people killing themselves every day, one third had been to combat. One third had been to a combat zone, but had never seen combat. And one third had never even left the United States or even gotten near a combat zone in their military career. So what in the world is going on? So the military, the government, all the best researchers across the country have been in joint effort now for several years trying to see if there is a marker in the blood, in the brain, a marker that can signal resilience. And resilience is about the only thing that most experts agree on how some people bounce back from extreme trauma and adversity and other people get hard and brittle and never quite ever are themselves again without a lot of help. And I think, I believe if there's anything to be said about leadership and its connection to biology or DNA, it might be somewhere in the resiliency marker. Yeah, that's a lot of what I see with the leaders I work with, where's that subtle difference sometimes that resiliency through these really difficult, challenging times through a crisis, which is a good or not so good lead in to the moral dilemma. Oh, it's a good yeah. one. I use that. So we do like to have a moral dilemma presented to our guests. And lately, oh, so you're, let me make sure I get my brain in the right spot. You're yeah. going to give me a moral dilemma and I got to talk my way through it. Yeah, exactly. Oh, bring and it. You, and you may look at it and say, that's not even, I don't even see the morality issue here. <laughs> this is black. Right. And in fact, I'm going to share a perennial one with you uh, because it does seem to provoke some interesting conversations. So I'll apply it in your case as well, especially in light of the fact that you've um, grown and led um, early to mid-stage companies. So let's say you are uh, in the seat of growing another early to mid-stage company. Uh, you're the uh, CEO of record, the CEO of choice. However, yep. you've been uh, stretched a bit due to some challenges with the supply chain, we'll say in this case. And thus, you've had to go out for additional funding. Uh, it was time for it anyway, sooner or later. So you're bringing in a deep pocket, profoundly impactful investor. They are highly known, highly regarded. They will make an impact just on your mantle on the website to have this um, person come in, they'll take a lead seat on the board and they will give you so much runway. So great investor, great for the brand, high prestige, all the good things about it. So you're in, you've got this yeah. person on board in the first board meeting, this lead investor with who now has a lead seat on the board tells you in front of the rest of the board, <clears throat> you know, I've taken a closer look at your executive team. You need to get rid of Sheila. Now, Sheila happens to be your only female executive. You happen to be a big believer and supporter in Sheila. You convince her to leave her prior job to join the company. And in effect, she joined you because she was a believer in you first and the, uh, the company's mission second. So your moral dilemma is, what do you do? You've just pocketed um, significant um, investment and yeah. you have this prestigious board member who's telling you that uh, you need to get rid of your only 
female executive who you have this background with? What do you do? Yeah. Well, there's a couple of different ways to look at it. First of all, you got to look at all your options and figure out what matters most. So I, you know, this is a, this is a tool that I use in this kind of storytelling and answering a hypothetical. And I don't mind answering a hypothetical in this case, because it's for the purpose of our discussion and your listeners. So I've got in my mind, the name of somebody who I used to work with, and she will be the perfect person for me to imagine the back of my brain how I would handle this. I brought this person in. She's been doing phenomenal, bringing in a new decision maker and they say she's got to go. So what I would do is what I would call basically a twofold effort simultaneously. Initially, what I would do is say, okay, look, we are going to work on this new investment team and I'm going to do everything I can to demonstrate the qualities of, I think you said her name was Sheila. Yeah, Sheila. Yeah, Sheila. So to 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 explain why I, who you invested in us, why I believe that she is a part of us and we can't be as effective as us. So that's the first thing I'm doing full full speed, full stop, full time. And then secondly, without telling Sheila that she's, you know, under, you know, in this pressure cooker, if you will, that she doesn't even know about, I personally, as a CEO, going to take even more vested interest and seeing what I can do to address whatever kernel of truth, whatever it might be, that I could help her work on, reframe, do differently, uh, not because it's a fault necessarily that she's doing, but we've all got faults. It could be something that just set that investor wrong. But if I get to the point where I realize that they, when their belief as a fiduciary responsibility are acting in a way that is legal, moral and ethical, meaning they're not doing anything that's illegal uh, or immoral. And again, I'm ca- Sorry, very, ca- no, not you, Siri. I'm very <laughs> carefully caveating all my words. Then if I knew that they had every right as a voting member of the board and they could have the pull to get her gone, as soon as I realized we'd gone past that point of no return, well, then I would go in a direction I'm going to tell you about in a second. But before I get there, if I do sense for any reason that what they're doing is unethical, immoral for the wrong reasons, as you were implying your question, illegal, then I would relish that chance to get to work them over, work over the board, work everybody to call that out, to expose their own hypocrisy, do whatever. Because at the end of the day, remember what I was talking about leadership across all four sectors? It's about people. And if our team doesn't believe that I've got their back, well, then it'll all disintegrate and it'll be gone. So I'd rather get bumped, bruised, and knocked around defending her than to go along with their game. Now, let me go back to that other caveat a second ago. If they're just doing it because there's just something that that just bothered them and they just got it and I can't prove it or nail it down to anything else, I get to do what I have done in real companies with real people. I finally sat that person down. I said, look, here's the situation. I've done everything I can. I lay out what I did and I lay out all the time. I cannot stop this from happening because of the fiduciary responsibilities of the shareholders and the, and the decision makers and whatnot. It just sucks the way it's going down. But here's my promise to you. I am going to work behind the scenes right now before, you know, the end date. And I'm going to give you the off ramp, if not formally, informally so that when you land you're cooking with Crisco and you're going off to the next bigger thing and you're not even going to look back 
And that that's actually happened enough times in my 30 plus years that I had this really cool, blessed cadre of friends and former colleagues that know that I'm never, you know, I'm never going to intentionally, might accidentally, but never intentionally do them wrong. And more importantly, when facing that situation, even if she or he or whoever it is gets pushed out and I can't stop it, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that they land, they land on higher ground than they were in that previous situation. So I don't know if that speaks to your moral dilemma, but I have actually literally been there, done that in a similar place. And that's how I handled it with this one person. By the way, her new company now where she is, circle back in a year after this podcast, and I'll tell you what her name was and where that company is going. Great, great example. I mean, it does point to the fact that sometimes through adversity, amazing opportunity presents itself, uh, as, as you are saying. I mean, sometimes we excuse it away to say, I know this feels bad for the moment, but you're going to end up doing something great. That often turns out to be the case. Well, and, and I don't say it if you don't mean it. Like, yeah. don't say, oh, you'll be fine. Like, yeah. I don't tell people that I, you know, I'm parts of teams where we have to let them go when they're non-performance duds. I don't say we're letting you go. You'll be fine. I'm just saying we're letting you go. Here's the terms of your separation. Right. And uh, if you have any questions, follow up with our team. <laughs> yeah, I find a lot of leaders in those situations, as, you, as you're talking about and sharing how your experience with it and the advice, they, they struggle with the courage to do it because they start thinking about the implications for themselves, right? And I know yeah. you mentioned, right, having the confidence to say, hey, I'm okay getting beat up. I'm okay with that. What's your advice for some of those leaders or, or at that moment where they're about to make that leap to take that courage to, to do that? How do they get through that? Because I think that's where they hesitate. Well, it's really hard to explain unless you've seen people role model it. And that again goes back True. to the very first question I think, David, yeah. you brought up, which is, you know, where does leadership fail? And I said, with hubris and ego, when, when to Chris, to your point, when young leaders don't know quite if they have the courage to make that really hard decision, they can just push through, you know, hear this discussion we're talking about today. Many of your listeners are probably dealing with something similar. If they could just kind of stand as straight as they can and then walk in and make that call or, or make that statement or raise their hand and do what they think, needs to be done. I'm of the belief and history plays it out and leader, literature plays it out and everything that I've been experienced plays it out that in the long run, not the short term, short term could be very ugly, could get fired, could be left out, could be bruised up a little bit. I'm not saying short term, but in the long term, it pays off in the sense, first of all, you retain your integrity, you retain your reputation, which that's about the only thing that you can own that you can't, you know, uh, outsource to other people. If you can retain your integrity and your self-confidence, and I call it the pillow test, you know, once you lay your head down on the pillow at the end of the night, if you're falling asleep quick because you have retained your integrity and retained your reputation because you know you did in your core with all available information that was the right thing at the time, then you get to sleep peacefully. Now, the cool part is we all make mistakes. We're going to look back at decisions. I mean, I have had hiring decisions. Oh, my gosh, that I so regret to this day. But not regret in the sense that at the time I purposefully did the wrong thing. I just realized that as a younger, more junior leader, I was kind of, you know, one particular case, kind of bullied a little bit into one of the hires and told, oh, you don't know enough. You're too young of a CEO. I should have gone with my gut. My gut knew what the right answer was. but 
I now, from that beating I took, have that scar tissue to say, you know what? I see a pattern here, and my pattern is X, Y, or Z. And that's, I think, how leaders get over it. At every level, by the way. Every job you get into, yep. I think it's what, the Peter Principle? Every yep. job you get into could be too hard for you, and you just have to figure out whether or not you've been promoted above your skill level, or you just still have something to learn. Yeah, I, I do see that too. I see a couple of things that patterns that stand out when I see leaders get break through there. One is that humility you're talking about in the sense of, hey, I may not have all the right information. This might be a mistake, but it's what I know right now, and it's the best decision I'm going to make at the time and feeling okay with that. But and the other two that I see is leaders who make that put, put themselves out there, challenge that they have an advocate somewhere. They have someone they're talking to. They have someone who's sort of in the back of their mind that hey, I have the confidence to go forward and make this decision stand on my own because they're not really on their own in the back of their mind. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the power of mentorship, which, mm -hmm. you know, has been driving me since I was a kid. Like I told you at the beginning, I am the reflection today of all of those role models who were mentors, coaches, teachers, who did their best to, to kind of help, you know, keep the left and right going in the general correct direction. Uh, and that's where I got today. And now when things really confuse me and I still don't understand, I lean back on them. It's like, is this crazy? Is this crazy? Let me tell you what happened today. Let me tell you how I reacted. Am I crazy? More often than not, they tell me, yeah, you did handle that wrong, but you could do this instead and you can do this to make up and et cetera. Yep, that's good. Hey, so um, speaking of mentor, seems like a good Sedwick to uh, talk about the mentor method, shall we? Absolutely. One of my favorite things. I bet. So give us a bit of an overview, if you would, of uh, what inspired it. Uh, where are you now in the journey of uh, building out the mentor method? I admit um, that I'm a fan. You've, you and I have had recent discussions about yeah. uh, your solution. I want to try to find a way to help you guys be successful, but but shed some light on the mentor method, if you would. Yeah. So, you know, the underlying belief that underneath all of it is this need to invest in people, right? To, to give them the space, the time to learn, to grow, the feedback. It's investing in people at all levels. And so mentorship, by definition, is a two-way relationship between somebody who might have a little more experience with somebody who's looking for a little bit of advice, coaching, different words can be used and interchanged. But for the most part, it's about this two-way street and it requires trust because if done well, you're sharing some pretty, pretty inside information or dark secrets or, you know, uh, information that requires courage to be shared to say the least. So that's how the relationship, you know, hopefully will evolve. But how it starts is the hardest part that the mentor method is trying to get at. So uh, you asked about the inspiration. So the inspiration behind the company came from the life experiences of our CEO and founder, Janice Omadeki, first generation American. Her parents immigrated to the United States uh, from the Democratic uh, Republic of the Congo. And in doing so, ended up in the D.C. area. The dad was working three jobs a day to try to make ends meet, but he did it with such gusto, such personality, such passion, if you will, that a gentleman in the line at a bank teller job that he had one time pulled him aside and basically said, look, I see something in you that I think has huge potential. And over the course of time, mentored him to seek out the opportunities to get an IT degree that within a period of time, Janice's dad ended up working in the Pentagon in the IT department 
and completely change the trajectory, not just of the dad, but of the entire family, Janice included, for the rest of their life. And so if you take that one story of the need or the absence, if you will, remember that ZIP versus DNA we were talking about earlier? Yeah. The need to be able to provide people the opportunity to have the access to the learning, to the role models, to the opportunities to grow and have someone invest in their own development. Well, off they went. And so Janice said, what can I do now in my world? Because she was in the corporate world for a while and saw many of these same problems and dilemmas we we're talking about on this entire podcast and said, wait, what if I built a platform to be able to create a double blind method, meaning we're going to strip out gender and race and ethnicity and everything else. And we're just going to try to match people based on, it's a simple 22 question assessment on their personality type, on their skills and skills gaps that they want to improve, on their industry aspirations, marketing, or I want to go into finance or whatever it happens to be. And then inside of a large organization at scale, company is blessed with, you know, three to 500 people or more. They have lots of experts with lots of experience and they could be the mentors to those junior mentor members. And then, you know, you all and your listeners probably already know the benefits, and the outcomes. First of all, great retention. I mean, when people leave companies, they don't leave because they say, oh, everybody in this company cared about me and everybody seemed to be interested. And I had people I could talk to. It's literally the opposite. Nobody cared about them. Nobody showed any interest. I just left and nobody noticed. That retention tool alone pays for the mentor method subscription that they have. But the other neat thing about it, though, is to the point of this entire conversation we've had, is it invests in people. So, you know, like you all, a lot of executive leadership coaching occurs taking those CEOs at high level and, you know, very talented leadership coaches come in and provide programs and time. And it's very expensive, but it's very good return on investment. But what about the rest of the company? What about, you know, from the senior level, all through mid-management, all the way down to the junior members, what can the company do for them? And that's where mentorship at scale will work. And that's why I joined the mentors method because I knew that was the missing link. Uh, I had been fortunate to have great role models, great mentors, but what do you do about companies who maybe junior members don't even know where to start? And so the mentor method takes care of where to start, how to match. It even has prescribed uh, methodology about questions to ask and a pattern to follow. Because there's a lot of people, again, who don't even know where to start. And you could just take it off the shelf, get it running in under an hour. Or if you already have a mentor method or excuse me, a mentorship program going, you can just tailor everything in our program. It's all configurable to make it match what you're doing and that's what we love about it. So thank you, David, for allowing me to do that shameless promotion of the mentor method, because it really does speak to so much of what we've been talking about today. We try to not do shameless promotions around here, but this one, <laughs> uh, I, I don't Germain, like, sir. I do so not true. feel like I'm compromising shame in any way whatsoever. This is one um, that I can support. The mentor method, and it's thementormethod.com, right? That's right. That's the website. And you got to look on those videos and see Janice speak to audiences, one of her TEDx talks. That's what inspired me uh, to even reach out and meet her. Uh, and then did, you know, it's so funny. You and I were talking right now. I had a podcast video series I did during COVID when I couldn't leave and uh, did about 55 episodes. And she was one of the interviews I did. And I just, I called her immediately after the interview and said, wow, I want to work with you. Let me know how I can. And two years later, I'm on the team. 
That's yeah, great. lucky her. Yeah. Well, lucky and, me. And I guess as we start to wrap up, Joseph, uh, folks can find you at the graylinegroup.com. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm easy to find all over social media. Your audience will probably find most of my content on LinkedIn. Uh, Joseph Kopser, K-O-P-S-E-R. That's where I am. Uh, and, and by the way, kinds of- yeah, I'm a bit concerned. On LinkedIn, so? you're at 7,996 only connections and you can't get to 8,000. What's the problem? What's the hold up? You know, David this is an inside joke right now between my wife and I, because I just so happened to notice recently, it was at like 797,075. Yeah. And I, I'm watching it like, you know, the, the apple that comes down on New Year's Eve yeah. in New York City. I'm like, when the hell is it going to be midnight? And I hit 18,000 fo- or 8,000 followers. But yeah, it's funny. We've been talking about in our house too. Well, uh, but anyway, we may already be there. Yeah, we'll have four <laughs> listeners to this podcast that I know are going to yeah. jump on there. There, there you go. There you You're go. You're welcome. Knows? Thank you very much. <laughs> well, no, see, it, whenever you release this after we tape it, by then this podcast will push me over 9,000 because True. you have you know a, a, a great audience. But, um, but you asked the question though, Chris, about how to get in contact with me. So LinkedIn is the best. Uh, and then in addition to that, I make it very easy to, you know, pick up future counterparts, clients, customers, partners, investors, you name it, because in my profile, you'll see that I not only work with companies, but I work for companies. I also work with companies. Uh, and again, it goes back to that long rambling uh, introduction you made at the end, beginning of the podcast, which is I'm all over the place because until I figure out what I want to be when I grow up. I just love working with talented people on really hard problems. Uh, and there's all kinds of stuff inside my contact info, info section on LinkedIn to be able to follow up. That's great. super. Yeah. Joseph, real pleasure having you on the show. Yeah. Chris, I enjoyed every second of it. Loved it. Um, I'll see you down the road. We'll pick up the conversation about the mentor method. I want to help however I can. You guys are really on to something. Thanks, David. Look forward to that too. Thanks for listening. Do you know a leader who could benefit from hearing about the leadership trap? Well, we hope you will share this podcast with them. And remember, give the podcast a five-star rating. Every rating helps us reach more leaders. You can find us at theleadershiptrap.org. Okay, we'll see you next time. And until then, stay out of those traps.